Paul sat back. He had used the questions and hyper-awareness to do what his mother called registering the person. He had kinds now, tone of voice, each detail of face and gesture. An unnatural folding of the left sleeve on the man's robe told him of a knife in an arm sheath. The waist bulged strangely. It was said that desert men wore a belted sash into which they tucked small necessities. Perhaps the bulges came from such a sash, certainly not from a concealed shield belt. A copper pin engraved with the likeness of a hair clasped the neck of Kynes's robe. Another smaller pin with similar likeness hung at the corner of the hood, which was thrown back over his shoulders. Halleck twisted in the seat beside Paul, reached back into the rear compartment and brought out his balisette. Kynes looked around as Halleck tuned the instrument, then returned his attention to their course. "'What would you like to hear, young master?' Halleck asked. "'You choose, Gurney,' Paul said. Halleck bent his ear close to the sounding board, strummed a chord, and sang softly. "'Our fathers ate manna in the desert, in the burning places where whirlwinds came. Lord, save us from that horrible land. Save us, oh, save us!' from the dry and thirsty land. Kynes glanced at the duke, said, You do travel with a light compliment of guards, my lord. Are all of them such men of many talents? Gurney, the duke chuckled. Gurney's one of a kind. I like him with me for his eyes. His eyes miss very little. The planetologist frowned. Without missing a beat in his tune, Halleck interposed, for I am like an owl of the desert, oh, I uh, am like an owl of the desert. The Duke reached down, brought up a microphone from the instrument panel, thumbed it to life, said, Leader to escort, Gemma. Flying object at nine o'clock, Sector B. Did you identify it? It's merely a bird, Kynes said, and added, You have sharp eyes. The panel speaker crackled, then, Escort, Gemma. Object examined under full amplification. It's a large bird. Paul looked in the indicated direction, saw the distant speck, a dot of intermittent motion, and realized how keyed up his father must be. Every sense was at full alert. I'd not realized there were birds that large this far into the desert, the Duke said. That's likely an eagle, Kynes said. Many creatures have adapted to this place. The ornithopter swept over a bare rock plain. Paul looked down from their two thousand metres altitude, saw the wrinkled shadow of their craft and escort. The land beneath seemed flat, but shadow wrinkles said otherwise. Has anyone ever walked out of the desert? the Duke asked. Halleck's music stopped. He leaned forward to catch the answer. Not from the deep desert, Kynes said. Men have walked out of the second zone several times. They've survived by crossing the rock areas where worms seldom go. The timbre of Kynes' voice held Paul's attention. He felt his senses come alert the way they were trained to do. Ah, the worms, the Duke said. I must see one sometime. You may see one today, Kynes said. Wherever there is spice, there are worms. Always? Halleck asked. Always. Is there a relationship between worm and spice? The Duke asked. Kynes turned, and Paul saw the pursed lips as the man spoke. They defend spice sands. Each worm has a 
territory. As to the spice, who knows? Worm specimens we've examined lead us to suspect complicated chemical interchanges within them. We find traces of hydrochloric acid in the ducts. More complicated acid forms elsewhere. I'll give you my monograph on the subject. And a shield's no defence? The Duke asked. Shields? Kynes sneered. Activate a shield within the worm zone and seal your fate. Worms ignore territory lines, come from far around to attack a shield. No man wearing a shield has ever survived such attack. How are worms taken, then? High-voltage electrical shock applied separately to each ring segment is the only known way of killing and preserving an entire worm, Kind said. They can be stunned and shattered by explosives, but each ring segment has a life of its own. Barring atomics, I know of no explosive powerful enough to destroy a large worm entirely. They're incredibly tough. Why hasn't an effort been made to wipe them out? Paul asked. Too expensive, Kynes said. Too much area to cover. Paul leaned back in his corner. His truth sense, awareness of tone shadings, told him that Kynes was lying and telling half-truths. And he thought, if there's a relationship between spice and worms, killing the worms would destroy the spice. No one will have to walk out of the desert soon, the Duke said. Trip these little transmitters at our necks and rescue is on its way. All our workers will be wearing them before long. We're setting up a special rescue service. Very commendable, Kynes said. Your tone says you don't agree, the Duke said. Agree? Of course I agree, but it won't be much use. Static electricity from sandstorms masks out many signals. Transmitters short out. They've been tried here before, you know. Arrakis is tough on equipment. And if a worm's hunting you, there's not much time. Frequently you have no more than fifteen or twenty minutes. What would you advise? the Duke asked. You ask my advice? As planetologist, yes. You'd follow my advice? If I found it sensible. Very well, my lord. Never travel alone. The Duke turned his attention from the controls. That's all? That's all. Never travel alone. What if you're separated by a storm and forced down? Halleck asked. Isn't there anything you could do? Anything covers much territory, Kynes said. What would you do? Paul asked. Kynes turned a hard stare at the boy, brought his attention back to the Duke. I'd remember to protect the integrity of my stillsuit. If I were outside the worm zone, or in rock, I'd stay with the ship. If I were down in open sand, I'd get away from the ship as fast as I could. About a thousand meters would be far enough. Then I'd hide beneath my robe. A worm would get the ship, but it might miss me. Then what? Halleck asked. Kynes shrugged. Wait for the worm to leave. That's all? Paul asked. When the worm has gone, one may try to walk out, Kynes said. You must walk softly. Avoid drum sands, tidal dust basins. Head for the nearest rock zone. There are many such zones. You might make it. Drum sand? Halleck asked. A condition of sand compaction, Kynes said. The slightest step sets it drumming. Worms always come to that. And a tidal dust basin? The Duke asked. Certain depressions in the desert have filled with dust over the centuries. They are so vast, they have currents and tides. All will swallow the unwary who step into them. Halleck sat back, resumed strumming the baliset. Presently he sang, 
Wild beasts of the desert do hunt there, waiting for the innocents to pass. Oh, tempt not the gods of the desert, lest you seek her lonely epitaph. The perils of the... He broke off, leaned forward. Dust cloud ahead, sire. I see it, Gurney. That's what we seek, Kynes said. Paul stretched up in the seat to peer ahead. Saw a rolling yellow cloud low on the desert surface some thirty kilometres ahead. One of your factory crawlers, Kynes said. It's on the surface, and that means it's on spice. The cloud is vented sand being expelled after the spice has been centrifugally removed. There's no other cloud quite like it. Aircraft over it, the Duke said. I see two, three, four spotters, Kynes said. They're watching for worm sign. Worm sign? the Duke asked. A sand wave moving toward the crawler. They'll have seismic probes on the surface, too. Worms sometimes travel too deep for the wave to show. Kynes swung his gaze around the sky. Should be a carry-all wing around, but I don't see it. A worm always comes, eh? Halleck asked. Always. Paul leaned forward, touched Kynes's shoulder. How big an area does each worm stake out? Kynes frowned. The child kept asking adult questions. That depends on the size of the worm. What's the variation? The Duke asked. Big ones may control three or four hundred square kilometres. Small ones... He broke off as the Duke kicked on the jet brakes. The ship bucked as its tail pods whispered to silence. Stub wings elongated, cupped the air. The craft became a full thopter as the Duke banked it, holding the wings to a gentle beat, pointing with his left hand off to the east, beyond the factory crawler. Is that worm sign? Kynes leaned across the Duke to peer into the distance. Paul and Halleck were crowded together, looking in the same direction, and Paul noted that their escort, caught by the sudden manoeuvre, had surged ahead, but now was curving back. The factory crawler lay ahead of them, still some three kilometres away. Where the Duke pointed, crescent dune tracks spread shadow ripples toward the horizon, and running through them as a level line stretching into the distance came an elongated mount in motion, a cresting of sand. It reminded Paul of the way a big fish disturbed the water when swimming just under the surface. Worm, Kynes said. Big one. He leaned back, grabbed the microphone from the panel, punched out a new frequency selection. Glancing at the grid chart on rollers over their heads, he spoke into the microphone. Calling crawler at Delta Ajax Niner. Worm sign warning. Crawler at Delta Ajax Niner. Worm sign warning. Acknowledge, please. He waited. The panel speaker emitted static crackles, then a voice. Who calls Delta Ajax Niner? Over. They seem pretty calm about it, Halleck said. Kynes spoke into the microphone. Unlisted flight, north and east of you about three kilometres. Worm sign is on intercept course, your position, estimated contact twenty-five minutes. Another voice rumbled from the speaker. This is spotter control, sighting confirmed, standby for contact fix. There was a pause, then, contact in twenty-six minutes minus. That was a sharp estimate. Who's on that unlisted flight? Over. Halleck had his harness off and surged forward between Kynes and the Duke. Is this the regular working frequency, Kynes? Yes. Why? Who'd be listening? Just the work areas in this area. Cuts down interference. Again, the speaker crackled. Then, this is Delta Ajax 9 now. Who gets bonus credit for that spot? Over. 
Halleck glanced at the Duke. Kynes said, There's a bonus based on spice load for whoever gives first worm warning. They want to know. Tell them who have first sight of that worm, Halleck said. The Duke nodded. Kynes hesitated, then lifted the microphone. Spotter credit to the Duke Leto Atreides. The Duke Leto Atreides, over. The voice from the speaker was flat and partly distorted by a burst of static. We read and thank you. Now, tell them to divide the bonus among themselves, Halleck ordered. Tell them it's the Duke's wish. Kynes took a deep breath, then... It's the Duke's wish that you divide the bonus among your crew. Do you read? Over. Acknowledged and thank you, the speaker said. The Duke said, I forgot to mention that Gurney is also very talented in public relations. Kynes turned a puzzled frown on Halleck. This lets the men know their Duke is concerned for their safety, Halleck said. Word will get around. It was on an area working frequency, not likely Harkonnen agents heard. He glanced out of their air cover. And we're a pretty strong force. It was a good risk. The Duke banked their craft toward the sand cloud erupting from the factory crawler. What happens now? There's a carry-all wing somewhere close, Kynes said. It'll come in and lift off the crawler. What if the carry-all's wrecked? Halleck asked. Some equipment is lost, Kynes said. Get in close over the crawler, my lord. You'll find this interesting. The Duke scowled, busied himself with the controls as they came into turbulent air over the crawler. Paul looked down, saw sand still spewing out of the metal and plastic monster beneath them. It looked like a great tan and blue beetle with many wide tracks extending on arms around it. He saw a giant inverted funnel snout poked into dark sand in front of it. Rich spice bed by the colour, Kynes said. They'll continue working until the last minute. The Duke fed more power to the wings, stiffened them for a steeper descent as he settled lower in a circling glide above the crawler. A glance left and right showed his cover holding altitude and circling overhead. Paul studied the yellow cloud belching from the crawler's pipe vents, looked out over the desert at the approaching worm track. Shouldn't we be hearing them call in the carriole? Halleck asked. They usually have the wing on a different frequency. Kynes said. Shouldn't they have two carrioles standing by for every crawler? The Duke asked. There should be twenty-six men on that machine down there, not to mention cost of equipment. Kynes said, You don't have enough ex- He broke off as the speaker erupted with an angry voice. Any of you see the wing? He isn't answering. A garble of noise crackled from the speaker, drowned in an abrupt override signal, then silence, and the first voice. Report by the numbers. Over. This is spotter control. Last I saw, the wing was pretty high and circling off northwest. I don't see him now. Over. Spotter one, negative. Over. Spotter two, negative. Over. Spotter three, negative. Over. Silence. The Duke looked down. His own craft's shadow was just passing over the crawler. Only four spotters, is that right? Correct, Kynes said. There are five in our party, the Duke said. Our ships are larger. We can crowd in three extra each. Their spotters ought to be able to lift off two each. Paul did the mental arithmetic, said, That's three short. Why don't they have two carryalls to each crawler? barked the Duke. You don't have enough extra equipment, Kynes said. All the more reason we should protect what we have. Where could that carryall go? Haddock asked. 
could have been forced down somewhere out of sight, Kynes said. The Duke grabbed the microphone, hesitated, with thumb poised over its switch. How could they lose sight of a carryall? They keep their attention on the ground, looking for Wormsheim, Kynes said. The Duke thumbed the switch, spoke into the microphone. This is your Duke. We are coming down to take off Delta Ajax Niner's crew. All spotters are ordered to comply. Spotters will land on the east side. We will take the west. Over. He reached down, punched out his own command frequency, repeated the order for his own air cover, handed the microphone back to Kynes. Kynes returned to the working frequency, and a voice blasted from the speaker. Almost a full load of spice! We have almost a full load! We can't leave that for a damned worm! Over! Damn the spice! The Duke barked. He grabbed back the microphone, said, We can always get more spice. There are seats in our ships for all but three of you. Draw straws or decide any way you like who's to go. But you're going, and that's an order. He slammed the microphone back into Kynes's hands, muttered, Sorry, as Kynes shook an injured finger. How much time? Paul asked. Nine minutes, Kynes said. The Duke said, This ship has more power than the others. If we took off under jet with three-quarter wings, we could crowd in an additional man. That sounds soft, Kynes said. With four extra men aboard on a jet takeoff, we could snap the wings, sire, Halleck said. Not on this ship, the Duke said. He hauled back on the controls as the thopter glided in beside the crawler. The wings, tipped up, braked the thopter to a skidding stop within twenty metres of the factory. The crawler was silent now, no sand spouting from its vents. Only a faint mechanical rumble issued from it, becoming more audible as the Duke opened his door. Immediately their nostrils were assailed by the odour of cinnamon, heavy and pungent. With a loud flapping, the spotter aircraft glided down to the sand on the other side of the crawler. The Duke's own escort swooped in to land in line with him. Paul, looking out at the factory, saw how all the thopters were dwarfed by it, gnats beside a warrior beetle. Gurney, you and Paul toss out that rear seat, the Duke said. He manually cranked the wings out to three quarters, set their angle, checked the jet pod controls. Why the devil aren't they coming out of that machine? They're hoping the carryall will show up, Kynes said. They still have a few minutes. He glanced off to the east. All turned to look the same direction, seeing no sign of the worm, but there was a heavy, charged feeling of anxiety in the air. The Duke took the microphone, punched for his command frequency, said, Two of you toss out your shield generators. By the numbers. You can carry one more man that way. We're not leaving any men for that monster. He keyed back to the working frequency, barked, All right, you and Delta Ajax Niner, out, now. This is a command from your Duke. On the double, or I'll cut that crawler apart with a laze gun. A hatch snapped open near the front of the factory, another at the rear, another at the top. Men came tumbling out, sliding and scrambling down to the sand. A tall man in a patched, working robe was the last to emerge. He jumped down to a track and then to the sand. The Duke hung the microphone on the panel, swung out onto the wingstep, shouted, Two men each into your spotters! The man in the patched robe began tolling off pairs of his crew, pushing them toward the craft waiting on the other side. Four over here! the Duke shouted. Four into that ship back there! He jabbed a finger at an escort thopter directly behind him. The guards were just wrestling the shield generator out of it. And four into that ship over there! He pointed to the other escort that had shed its shield generator. 
Three each into the others. Run, you sand dogs! The tall man finished counting off his crew, came slogging across the sand, followed by three of his companions. I hear the worm, but I can't see it, Kynes said. The others heard it then, an abrasive slithering, distant and growing louder. Damn slobby way to operate, the duke muttered. Aircraft began flapping off the sand around them. It reminded the duke of a time in his home planet's jungles, a sudden emergence into a clearing and carrion birds lifting away from the carcass of a wild ox. The spice workers slogged up to the side of the thopter, started climbing in behind the duke. Halleck helped, dragging them into the rear. In you go, boys, he snapped. On a double. Paul, crowded into a corner by sweating men, smelled the perspiration of fear, saw that two of the men had poor neck adjustments on their still suits. He filed the information in his memory for future action. His father would have to order tighter still suit discipline. Men tended to become sloppy if you didn't watch such things. The last man came gasping into the rear, said, A worm! It's almost on us! Blast off! The duke slid into his seat, frowning, said, We still have almost three minutes on the original contact estimate. Is that right, Kynes? He shut his door, checked it. Almost exactly, my lord, Kynes said. And he thought, A cool one, this duke. All secure here, sir, Halleck said. The duke nodded, watched the last of his escort take off. He adjusted the igniter, glanced once more at wings and instruments, punched the jet sequence. The takeoff pressed the Duke and Kynes deep into their seats, compressed the people in the rear. Kynes watched the way the Duke handled the controls, gently, surely. The thopter was fully airborne now, and the Duke studied his instruments, glanced left and right at his wings. She's very heavy, sir, Halleck said. Well within the tolerances of this ship the Duke said. You didn't really think I'd risk this cargo, did you, Gurney? Halleck grinned, said, Not a bit of it, sire. The Duke banked his craft in a long, easy curve, climbing over the crawler. Paul, crushed into a corner beside a window, stared down at the silent machine on the sand. The worm sign had broken up about four hundred metres from the crawler, and now there appeared to be turbulence in the sand around the factory. The worm is now beneath the crawler, Kynes said. You are about to witness a thing few have seen. Flecks of dust shadowed the sand around the crawler now. The big machine began to tip down to the right. A gigantic sand whirlpool began forming there to the right of the crawler. It moved faster and faster. Sand and dust filled the air now for hundreds of meters around. Then they saw it. A wide hole emerged from the sand. Sunlight flashed from glistening white spokes within it. The hole's diameter was at least twice the length of the crawler, Paul estimated. He watched as the machine slid into that opening in a billow of dust and sand. The hole pulled back. Good, what a monster, muttered a man beside Paul. Got all our flogging spice, growled another. Someone is going to pay for this, the Duke said. I promise you that. By the very flatness of his father's voice, Paul sensed the deep anger. He found that he shared it. This was criminal waste. In the silence that followed, they heard Kynes. Bless the maker and his water, Kynes murmured. Bless the coming and going of him. 
May his passage cleanse the world. May he keep the world for his people. What's that you're saying? the Duke asked. But Kynes remained silent. Paul glanced at the men crowded around him. They were staring fearfully at the back of Kynes's head. One of them whispered, Liet. Kynes turned, scowling. The man sank back, abashed. Another of the rescued men began coughing, dry and rasping. Presently he gasped, Curse this hell hole! The tall dune man who had come last out of the crawler said, Be you still, Kos. You but worsen your cough. He stirred among the men until he could look through them at the back of the duke's head. You be the duke Leto, I warrant, he said. It's to you we give thanks for our lives. We were ready to end it there until you came along. Quiet man and let the duke fly this ship, Halleck muttered. Paul glanced at Halleck. He too had seen the tension wrinkles at the corner of his father's jaw. One walked softly when the duke was in a rage. Later began easing his thopter out of its great banking circle, stopped at a new sign of movement on the sand. The worm had withdrawn into the depths, and now, near where the crawler had been, two figures could be seen moving north, away from the sand depression. They appeared to glide over the surface with hardly a lifting of dust to mark their passage. "'Who's that down there?' the Duke barked. Two Johnnies who came along for the ride, sir,' said the tall dune man. Why wasn't something said about them? It was a chance they took, sir, the dune man said. My lord, said Kynes, these men know it's of little use to do anything about men trapped on the desert in worm country. We'll send a ship from base for them, the duke snapped. As you wish, my lord, Kynes said. But likely when the ship gets here, there'll be no one to rescue. We'll send a ship anyway, the duke said. They were right beside where the worm came up, Paul said. How'd they escape? The sides of the hole cave in, and make the distances deceptive, Kynes said. You waste fuel here, sir, Halleck ventured. Aye, Gurney. The Duke brought his craft around toward the shield wall. His escort came down from circling stations, took up positions above and on both sides. Paul thought about what the dune man and Kynes had said. He sensed half-truths, outright lies. The men on the sand had glided across the surface so surely, moving in a way obviously calculated to keep from luring the worm back out of its depths. Framen, Paul thought. Who else would be so sure on the sand? Who else might be left out of your worries, as a matter of course, because they are in no danger? They know how to live here. They know how to outwit the worm. What were Fremen doing on that crawler? Paul asked. Kynes whirled. The tall dune man turned wide eyes on Paul, blue within blue within blue. Who be this lad? he asked. Halleck moved to place himself between the man and Paul, said, This is Paul Atreides, the ducal heir. Why says he there were Fremen on our rumbler? the man asked. They fit the description, Paul said. Kynes snorted. You can't tell Fremen just by looking at them. He looked at the dune man. You, who were those men? Friends of one of the others, the dune man said. Just friends from a village who wanted to see the spice sands. Kynes turned away. Fremen, 
but he was remembering the words of the legend. The Lisan al-Gaib shall see through all subterfuge. They be dead now, most likely, young Sur, the dune man said. We should not speak unkindly on them. But Paul heard the falsehood in their voices, felt the menace that had brought Halleck instinctively into guarding position. Paul spoke dryly. A terrible place for them to die. Without turning, Kynes said, When God hath ordained a creature to die in a particular place, he causeth that creature's wants to direct him to that place. Leto turned a hard stare at Kynes. And Kynes, returning the stare, found himself troubled by a fact he had observed here. This duke was concerned more over the men than he was over the spice. He risked his own life and that of his son to save the men. He passed off the loss of a spice crawler with a gesture. The threat to men's lives had him in a rage. A leader such as that would command fanatic loyalty. He would be difficult to defeat. Against his own will and all previous judgments, Kynes admitted to himself, I like this duke. Greatness is a transitory experience. It is never consistent. It depends in part upon the myth-making imagination of humankind. The person who experiences greatness must have a feeling for the myth he is in. He must reflect what is projected upon him, and he must have a strong sense of the sardonic. This is what uncouples him from belief in his own pretensions. The sardonic is all that permits him to move within himself. Without this quality, even occasional greatness will destroy a man. From Collected Sayings of Muad'Dib by the Princess Iralan. In the dining hall of the Arakeen Great House, suspenser lamps had been lighted against the early dark. They cast their yellow glows upward onto the black bull's head with its bloody horns and onto the darkly glistening oil painting of the old duke. Beneath these talismans, white linen shone around the burnished reflections of the Atreides' silver, which had been placed in precise arrangements along the great table, little archipelagos of service waiting behind crystal glasses, each setting squared off before a heavy wooden chair. The classic central chandelier remained unlighted, and its chain twisted upward into shadows where the mechanism of the poison snooper had been concealed. Pausing in the doorway to inspect the arrangements, the Duke thought about the poison snooper and what it signified in his society. All of a pattern, he thought. You can plumb us by our language, the precise and delicate delineations for ways to administer treacherous death. Will someone try chowmerky tonight, poison in the drink? Or will it be chowmus, poison in the food? He shook his head. Beside each plate on the long table stood a flagon of water. There was enough water along the table, the Duke estimated, to keep a poor Arakeen family for more than a year. Flanking the doorway in which he stood were broad laving basins of ornate yellow and green tile. Each basin had its rack of towels. It was the custom, the housekeeper had explained, for guests as they entered to dip their hands ceremoniously into a basin, slop several cups of water onto the floor, dry their hands on a towel, and fling the towel into the growing puddle at the door. After the dinner, 
Beggars gathered outside to get the water squeezings from the towels. How typical of a Harkonnen thief, the Duke thought. Every degradation of the spirit that can be conceived. He took a deep breath, feeling rage tighten his stomach. The custom stops here, he muttered. He saw a serving woman, one of the old and gnarled ones the housekeeper had recommended, hovering at the doorway from the kitchen across from him. The duke signalled with upraised hand. She moved out of the shadows, scurried around the table toward him, and he noted the leathery face, the blue-within-blue eyes. "'My lord wishes?' She kept her head bowed, eyes shielded. He gestured. "'Have these basins and towels removed?' "'But, noble-born,' she looked up, mouth gaping. "'I know the custom,' he barked. "'Take these basins to the front door.' While we're eating and until we've finished, each beggar who calls may have a full cup of water. Understood? Her leathery face displayed a twisting of emotions, dismay, anger. With sudden insight, Leto realized that she must have planned to sell the water squeezings from the foot-trampled towels, wringing a few coppers from the wretches who came to the door. Perhaps that also was a custom. His face clouded, and he growled, I'm posting a guard to see that my orders are carried out to the letter. He whirled, strode back down the passage to the great hall. Memories rolled in his mind like the toothless mutterings of old women. He remembered open water and waves, days of grass instead of sand, dazed summers that had whipped past him like windstorm leaves, all gone. I'm getting old, he thought. I've felt the cold hand of my mortality. And in what? An old woman's greed. In the great hall, the Lady Jessica was the centre of a mixed group standing in front of the fireplace. An open blaze crackled there, casting flickers of orange light onto jewels and laces and costly fabrics. He recognised in the group a stillsuit manufacturer down from Carthag, an electronics equipment importer, a water-shipper whose summer mansion was near his polar cap factory, a representative of the Guild Bank, lean and remote, that one, a dealer in replacement parts for spice-mining equipment, a thin and hard-faced woman whose escort service for off-planet visitors reputedly operated as cover for various smuggling, spying, and blackmail operations. Most of the women in the hall seemed cast from a specific type, decorative, precisely turned out, an odd mingling of untouchable sensuousness. Even without her position as hostess, Jessica would have dominated the group, he thought. She wore no jewellery and had chosen warm colours, a long dress, almost the shade of the open blaze, and an earth-brown band around her bronzed hair. He realised she had done this to taunt him subtly, a reproof against his recent pose of coldness, she was well aware that he liked her best in these shades, that he saw her as a rustling of warm colours. Nearby, more an outflanker than a member of the group, stood Duncan Idaho in glittering dress uniform, flat face unreadable, the curling black hair neatly combed. He had been summoned back from the Fremen and had his orders from Howat. Under pretext of guarding her, you will keep the Lady Jessica under constant surveillance. The Duke glanced around the room. There was Paul in the corner, surrounded by a fawning group of the younger Arikine Richesse, 
and aloof among them, three officers of the house troop. The duke took particular note of the young women. What a catch a ducal heir would make. But Paul was treating all equally with an air of reserved nobility. He'll wear the title well, the duke thought, and realized with a sudden chill that this was another death thought. Paul saw his father in the doorway, avoided his eyes. He looked around at the clusterings of guests, the jeweled hands clutching drinks, and the unobtrusive inspections with tiny, remote-cast snoopers. Seeing all the chattering faces, Paul was suddenly repelled by them. They were cheap masks locked on festering thoughts, voices gabbling to drown out the loud silence in every breast. I'm in a sour mood, he thought, and wondered what Gurney would say to that. He knew his mood's source. He hadn't wanted to attend this function, but his father had been firm. You have a place, a position to uphold. You're old enough to do this. You're almost a man. Paul saw his father emerge from the doorway, inspect the room, then cross to the group around the Lady Jessica. As Leto approached Jessica's group, the water shipper was asking, Is it true the Duke will put in weather control? From behind the man, the Duke said, We haven't gone that far in our thinking, sir. The man turned, exposing a bland, round face, darkly tanned. Ah, the Duke, he said. We missed you. Leto glanced at Jessica. A thing needed doing. He returned his attention to the water shipper, explained what he had ordered for the laving basins, adding, As far as I'm concerned, the old custom ends now. Is this a ducal order, my lord? The man asked. I leave that to your own, uh, conscience, the duke said. He turned, noting Kynes come up to the group. One of the women said, I think it's a very generous gesture, giving water to the... Someone shushed her. The duke looked at Kynes, noting that the planetologist wore an old-style dark brown uniform with epaulets of the imperial civil servant and a tiny gold teardrop of rank at his collar. The water shipper asked in an angry voice, Does the duke imply criticism of our custom? The custom has been changed, Leto said. He nodded to Kynes, marked the frown on Jessica's face, thought, A frown does not become her but it'll increase rumours of friction between us. With the Duke's permission, the water shipper asked, I'd like to inquire further about customs. Leto heard the sudden oily tone in the man's voice, noted the watchful silence in this group, the way heads were beginning to turn toward them around the room. Isn't it almost time for dinner? Jessica asked. But our guest has some questions, Leto said and he looked at the water-shipper, seeing a round-faced man with large eyes and thick lips, recalling Howard's memorandum. And this water-shipper is a man to watch. Lingar Butte, remember the name. The Harkonnens used him, but never fully controlled him. Water customs are so interesting, Butte said, and there was a smile on his face. I'm curious what you intend about the conservatory attached to this house. Do you intend to continue flaunting it in the people's faces, my lord? Leto held anger in check, staring at the man. Thoughts raced through his mind. It had taken bravery to challenge him in his own ducal castle, especially since they now had Butte's signature over a contract of allegiance. The action had taken, also, a knowledge of personal power. 
Water was, indeed, power here. If water facilities were mined, for instance, ready to be destroyed at a signal. The man looked capable of such a thing. Destruction of water facilities might well destroy Arrakis. That could well have been the club this butte held over the Harkonnens. My lord, the duke and I have other plans for our conservatory, Jessica said. She smiled at Leto. We intend to keep it, certainly, but only to hold it in trust for the people of Arrakis. It is our dream that some day the climate of Arrakis may be changed sufficiently to grow such plants anywhere in the open. Bless her, Leto thought. Let our water shipper chew on that. Your interest in water and weather control is obvious, the Duke said. I'd advise you to diversify your holdings. One day, water will not be a precious commodity on Arrakis. And he thought, Howard must redouble his efforts at infiltrating this Butte's organization, and we must start on standby water facilities at once. No man is going to hold a club over my head. Butte nodded, the smile still on his face. A commendable dream, my lord. He withdrew a pace. Leto's attention was caught by the expression on Kynes' face. The man was staring at Jessica. He appeared transfigured, like a man in love, or caught in a religious trance. Kynes' thoughts were overwhelmed at last by the words of prophecy, and they shall share your most precious dream. He spoke directly to Jessica. Do you bring the shortening of the way? Ah, Dr. Kynes, the watershipper said. You've come in from tramping around with your mobs of Fremen. How gracious of you. Kynes passed an unreadable glance across Butte, said, It is said in the desert that possession of water in great amount can inflict a man with fatal carelessness. They have many strange sayings in the desert, Butte said, but his voice betrayed uneasiness. Jessica crossed to Leto, slipped her hand under his arm to gain a moment in which to calm herself. Kynes had said, the shortening of the way. In the old tongue, the phrase translated as Kwisatz Haderach. The planetologist's odd question seemed to have gone unnoticed by the others, and now Kynes was bending over one of the consort women, listening to a low-voiced coquetry. Kwisatz Haderach, Jessica thought. Did our Missionaria Protectiva plant that legend here too? The thought fanned her secret hope for Paul. He could be the Kwisatz Haderach. He could be. The Guild Bank representative had fallen into conversation with the water shipper, and Butte's voice lifted above the renewed hum of conversations. Many people have sought to change Arrakis. The Duke saw how the words seemed to pierce Kynes jerking the planetologist upright and away from the flirting woman. In the sudden silence, a house trooper in uniform of a footman cleared his throat behind Leto, said, Dinner is served, my lord. The duke directed a questioning glance down at Jessica. The custom here is for host and hostess to follow their guests to table, she said, and smiled. Shall we change that one too, my lord? He spoke coldly. That seems a goodly custom. We shall let it stand for now. The illusion that I suspect her of treachery must be maintained, he thought. He glanced at the guests filing past them. Who among you believes this lie? Jessica, sensing his remoteness, 
wondered at it as she had done frequently the past week. He acts like a man struggling with himself, she thought. Is it because I moved so swiftly setting up this dinner party? Yet he knows how important it is that we begin to mix our officers and men with the locals on a social plane. We are father and mother surrogate to them all. Nothing impresses that fact more firmly than this sort of social sharing. Later watched the guests file past, recalled what Thufir Hawat had said when informed of the affair. Sire, I forbid it! A grim smile touched the Duke's mouth. What a scene that had been! And when the Duke had remained adamant about attending the dinner, Howard had shaken his head. I have bad feelings about this, my lord, he'd said. Things move too swiftly on Arrakis. That's not like the Harkonnens, not like them at all. Paul passed his father escorting a young woman half a head taller than himself. He shot a sour glance at his father, nodded at something the young woman said. Her father manufactures steel suits, Jessica said. I'm told that only a fool would be caught in the deep desert wearing one of the man's suits. Who's the man with a scarred face ahead of Paul? the Duke asked. I don't place him. A late addition to the list, she whispered. Gurney arranged the invitation. Smuggler. Gurney arranged? At my request. It was cleared with Howard, although I thought Howard was a little stiff about it. The smugglers called Tuik. Esmar Tuik. He's a power among his kind. They all know him here. He's dined at many of the houses. Why is he here? Everyone here will ask that question, she said. Tuik will sow doubt and suspicion just by his presence. He'll also serve notice that you're prepared to back up your orders against graft by enforcement from the smuggler's end as well. This was the point Howard appeared to like. I'm not sure I like it. He nodded to a passing couple, saw only a few of their guests remained to precede them. Why didn't you invite some Fremen? There's kinds, she said. Yes, there's kinds, he said. Have you arranged any other little surprises for me? He led her into step behind the procession. All else is most conventional, she said. And she thought, my darling, can't you see that this smuggler controls fast ships? that he can be bribed. We must have a way out, a door of escape from Arrakis, if all else fails us here. As they emerged into the dining hall, she disengaged her arm, allowed Leto to seat her. He strode to his end of the table. A footman held his chair for him. The others settled with a swishing of fabrics, a scraping of chairs, but the Duke remained standing. He gave a hand signal, and the house troopers in footman uniform around the table stepped back, standing at attention. Uneasy silence settled over the room. Jessica, looking down the length of the table, saw a faint trembling at the corners of Leto's mouth, and noted the dark flush of anger on his cheeks. What has angered him? she asked herself. Surely not my invitation to the smuggler. Some question my changing of the laving basin custom, Leto said. This is my way of telling you that many things will change. Embarrassed silence settled over the table. They think him drunk, Jessica thought. Leto lifted his water flagon, held it aloft where the suspenser lights shot beams of reflection of it. As a chevalier of the Imperium, then, he said, I give you a toast. 
The others grasped their flagons, all eyes focused on the Duke. In the sudden stillness, a suspenser light drifted slightly in the errant breeze from the serving kitchen hallway. Shadows played across the Duke's hawk features. Here I am, and here I remain, he barked. There was an abortive movement of flagons toward mouths stopped as the Duke remained with arm upraised. My toast is one of those maxims so dear to our hearts. Business makes progress. Fortune passes everywhere. He sipped his water. The others joined him. Questioning glances passed among them. Gurney, the Duke called. From an alcove at Leto's end of the room came Halleck's voice. Here, my lord. Give us a tune, Gurney. A minor chord from the ballisette floated out of the alcove. Servants began putting plates of food on the table at the Duke's gesture, releasing them. Roast desert hare in sauce cepeda. Aplomage Syrian. Chuka under glass. Coffee with melange. A rich cinnamon odour from the spice wafted across the table. A true pot served with sparkling caradan wine. Still, the Duke remained standing. As the guests waited, their attention torn between the dishes placed before them and the standing Duke, Leto said, In olden times it was the duty of the host to entertain his guests with his own talents. His knuckles turned white, so fiercely did he grip his water flagon. I cannot sing, but I give you the words of Gurney's song. Consider it another toast, a toast to all who've died bringing us to this station. An uncomfortable stirring sounded around the table. Jessica lowered her gaze, glanced at the people seated nearest her. There was the round-faced water shipper and his woman, the pale and austere guild bank representative. He seemed a whistle-faced scarecrow with his eyes fixed on Leto. The rugged and scar-faced Tuek, his blue-within-blue blue eyes downcast. Review, friends, troops, long past review, the Duke intoned. All to fate a weight of pains and dollars. Their spirits wear our silver collars. Review, friends, troops long past review. Each a dot of time without pretense or guile. With them passes the lure of fortune. Review, friends, troops long past review. When our time ends on its rictus smile, we'll pass the lure of fortune. The Duke allowed his voice to trail off on the last line, took a deep drink from his water flagon, slammed it back onto the table. Water slopped over the brim onto the linen. The others drank in embarrassed silence. Again the Duke lifted his water flagon, and this time emptied its remaining half onto the floor, knowing that the others around the table must do the same. Jessica was first to follow his example. There was a frozen moment before the others began emptying their flagons. Jessica saw how Paul, seated near his father, was studying the reactions around him. She found herself also fascinated by what her guests' actions revealed, especially among the women. This was clean, potable water, not something already cast away in a sopping towel. Reluctance to just discard it exposed itself in trembling hands, delayed reactions, nervous laughter, and violent obedience to the necessity. One woman dropped her flagon, 
looked the other way as her male companion recovered it. Kynes, though, caught her attention most sharply. The planetologist hesitated, then emptied his flagon into a container beneath his jacket. He smiled at Jessica as he caught her watching him, raised the empty flagon to her in a silent toast. He appeared completely unembarrassed by his action. Halleck's music still wafted over the room, but it had come out of its minor key, lilting and lively now as though he were trying to lift the mood. Let the dinner commence, the Duke said, and sank into his chair. He's angry and uncertain, Jessica thought. The loss of that factory crawler hit him more deeply than it should have. It must be something more than that loss. He acts like a desperate man. She lifted her fork, hoping in the motion to hide her own sudden bitterness. Why not? He is desperate. Slowly at first, then with increasing animation, the dinner got underway. The stillsuit manufacturer complimented Jessica on her chef and wine. We brought both from Caladan, she said. Superb, he said, tasting the chuka. Simply superb, and not a hint of melange in it. One gets so tired of the spice in everything. The Guild Bank representative looked across at Kynes. I understand, Dr. Kynes, that another factory crawler has been lost to a worm. News travels fast, the Duke said. Then it's true, the banker asked, shifting his attention to Leto. Of course it's true, the Duke snapped. The blasted carry-all disappeared. It shouldn't be possible for anything that big to disappear. When the worm came, there was nothing to recover the crawler, Kynes said. It should not be possible, the Duke repeated. No one saw the carry-all leave? the banker asked. Spotters customarily keep their eyes on the sand, Kynes said. They're primarily interested in worm sign. A carry-all's complement usually is four men, two pilots and two journeymen attachers. If one or even two of this crew were in the pay of the Duke's foes. Ah, I see, the banker said. And you, as judge of the change, do you challenge this? I shall have to consider my position carefully, Kynes said. And I certainly will not discuss it at table. And he thought, that pale skeleton of a man. He knows this is the kind of infraction I was instructed to ignore. The banker smiled returned his attention to his food. Jessica sat remembering a lecture from her Bene Gesserit school days. The subject had been espionage and counter-espionage. A plump, happy-faced reverend mother had been the lecturer, her jolly voice contrasting weirdly with the subject matter. The thing to note about any espionage and or counter-espionage school is the similar basic reaction pattern of all its graduates— any enclosed discipline sets its stamp, its pattern, upon its students. That pattern is susceptible to analysis and prediction. Now, motivational patterns are going to be similar among all espionage agents. That is to say, there will be certain types of motivation that are similar despite differing schools or opposed aims. You will study first how to separate this element for your analysis. In the beginning, through interrogation patterns that betray the inner orientation of the interrogators, Secondly, by close observation of language-thought orientation of those under analysis, you will find it fairly simple to determine the root languages of your subjects, of course, both through voice inflection and speech pattern. Now, sitting at table with her son and her duke and their guests, 
Hearing that Guild Bank representative, Jessica felt a chill of realization. The man was a Harkonnen agent. He had the Geardy Prime speech pattern subtly masked, but exposed to her trained awareness as though he had announced himself. Does this mean the Guild itself has taken sides against House Atreides? She asked herself. The thought shocked her, and she masked her emotion by calling for a new dish, all the while listening for the man to betray his purpose. He will shift the conversation next to something seemingly innocent, but with ominous overtones, she told herself. It's his pattern. The banker swallowed, took a sip of wine, smiled at something said to him by the woman on his right. He seemed to listen for a moment to a man down the table who was explaining to the duke that native Arakean plants had no thorns. I enjoy watching the flights of birds on Arrakis, the banker said, directing his words at Jessica. All of our birds, of course, are carrion eaters, and many exist without water, having become blood drinkers. The stillsuit manufacturer's daughter, seated between Paul and his father at the other end of the table, twisted her pretty face into a frown, said, Oh, Susu, you say the most disgusting things. The banker smiled. They call me Susu because I'm financial adviser to the Water Peddlers Union. And as Jessica continued to look at him without comment, he added, Because of the water seller's cry, Susu Sook and he imitated the call with such accuracy that many around the table laughed. Jessica heard the boastful tone of voice, but noted most that the young woman had spoken on cue. A set piece. She had produced the excuse for the banker to say what he had said. She glanced at Lingar Butte. The water magnate was scowling, concentrating on his dinner. It came to Jessica that the banker had said, I too control that ultimate source of power on Arrakis, water. Paul had marked the falseness in his dinner companion's voice, saw that his mother was following the conversation with Bene Gesserit intensity. On impulse, he decided to play the foil, draw the exchange out. He addressed himself to the banker. Do you mean, sir, that these birds are cannibals? That's an odd question, young master the banker said. I merely said the birds drink blood. It doesn't have to be the blood of their own kind, does it? It was not an odd question, Paul said, and Jessica noted the brittle riposte quality of her training exposed in his voice. Most educated people know that the worst potential competition for any young organism can come from its own kind. He deliberately forked a bite of food from his companion's plate, ate it. They are eating from the same bowl, they have the same basic requirements. The banker stiffened, scowled at the duke. Do not make the error of considering my son a child, the duke said, and he smiled. Jessica glanced around the table, noting that Butte had brightened, that both Kynes and the smuggler Tuek were grinning. It's a rule of ecology, Kynes said, that the young master appears to understand quite well. The struggle between life elements is the struggle for the free energy of a system. Blood's an efficient energy source. The banker put down his fork, spoke in an angry voice. It's said that the Fremen scum drink the blood of their dead. Kynes shook his head, spoke in a lecturing tone. Not the blood, sir, but all of a man's water ultimately belongs to his people. 
to his tribe. It's a necessity when you live near the Great Flat. All water's precious there, and the human body is composed of some seventy percent water by weight. A dead man, surely, no longer requires that water. The banker put both hands against the table beside his plate, and Jessica thought he was going to push himself back, leave in a rage. Kynes looked at Jessica. Forgive me, my lady, for elaborating on such an ugly subject at table, but you were being told falsehood, and it needed clarifying. You've associated so long with Fremen that you've lost all sensibilities, the banker rasped. Kynes looked at him calmly, studied the pale, trembling face. Are you challenging me, sir? The banker froze. His swallowed, spoke stiffly. Of course not. I'd not so insult our host and hostess. Jessica heard the fear in the man's voice, saw it in his face, in his breathing, in the pulse of a vein at his temple. The man was terrified of kinds. Our host and hostess are quite capable of deciding for themselves when they've been insulted, Kynes said. They're brave people who understand defense of honor. We all may attest to their courage by the fact that they are here, now, on Arrakis. Jessica saw that Leto was enjoying this. Most of the others were not. People all around the table sat poised for flight, hands out of sight under the table. Two notable exceptions were Butte, who was openly smiling at the banker's discomfiture, and the smuggler, Tuek, who appeared to be watching Kynes for a cue. Jessica saw that Paul was looking at Kynes in admiration. Well, Kynes said. I meant no offence, the banker muttered. If offence was taken, please accept my apologies. Freely given, freely accepted, Kynes said. He smiled at Jessica resumed eating as though nothing had happened. Jessica saw that the smuggler, too, had relaxed. She marked this. The man had shown every respect of an aide ready to leap to Kynes's assistance. There existed an accord of some sort between Kynes and Tuak. Leto toyed with a fork, looked speculatively at Kynes. The ecologist's manner indicated a change in attitude toward the house of Atreides. Kynes had seemed colder on their trip over the desert. Jessica signalled for another course of food and drink. Servants appeared with long de lapin de garenne, red wine and a sauce of mushroom yeast on the side. Slowly the dinner conversation resumed, but Jessica heard the agitation in it. The brittle quality saw that the banker ate in sullen silence. Kynes would have killed him without hesitating, she thought and she realized that there was an off-hand attitude toward killing in Kynes's manner. He was a casual killer, and she guessed that this was a Fremen quality. Jessica turned to the stillsuit manufacturer on her left, said, I find myself continually amazed by the importance of water on Arrakis. Very important, he agreed. What is this dish? It's delicious. Tongues of wild rabbit in a special sauce, she said. A very old recipe. I must have that recipe, the man said. She nodded. I'll see that you get it. Kynes looked at Jessica, said, The newcomer to Arrakis frequently underestimates the importance of water here. You are dealing, you see, with the law of the minimum. She heard the testing quality in his voice, said, Growth is limited by that necessity which is present in the least amount, and, naturally, 
the least favourable condition controls the growth rate. It's rare to find members of a great house aware of planetological problems, Kynes said. Water is the least favourable condition for life on Arrakis. And remember that growth itself can produce unfavourable conditions, unless treated with extreme care. Jessica sensed a hidden message in Kynes' words, but knew she was missing it. Growth, she said. Do you mean Arrakis can have an orderly cycle of water to sustain human life under more favourable conditions? Impossible, the water magnate barked. Jessica turned her attention to Butte. Impossible? Impossible on Arrakis, he said. Don't listen to this dreamer. All the laboratory evidence is against him. Kynes looked at Butte, and Jessica noted that the other conversations around the table had stopped while people concentrated on this new interchange. Laboratory evidence tends to blind us to a very simple fact, Kynes said. That fact is this. We are dealing here with matters that originated and exist out of doors, where plants and animals carry on their normal existence. Normal? Butte snorted. Nothing about Arrakis is normal. Quite the contrary, Kynes said. Certain harmonies could be set up here along self-sustaining lines. You merely have to understand the limits of the planet and the pressures upon it. It'll never be done, Butte said. The Duke came to a sudden realization, placing the point where Kynes's attitude had changed. It had been when Jessica had spoken of holding the conservatory plants in trust for Arrakis. What would it take to set up the self-sustaining system, Dr. Kynes? Plato asked. If we can get 3% of the green plant element on Arrakis involved in forming carbon compounds as foodstuffs, we've started the cyclic system, Kynes said. Water's the only problem? the Duke asked. He sensed Kynes' excitement, felt himself caught up in it. Water overshadows the other problems, Kynes said. This planet has much oxygen without its usual concomitants. Widespread plant life and large sources of free carbon dioxide from such phenomena as volcanoes. There are unusual chemical interchanges over large surface areas here. Do you have pilot projects? the Duke asked. We've had a long time in which to build up the Tansley effect, small unit experiments on an amateur basis from which my science may now draw its working facts, Kynes said. There isn't enough water, Butte said. There just isn't enough water. Master Butte is an expert on water, Kynes said. He smiled, turned back to his dinner. The Duke gestured sharply down with his right hand, barked, No, I want an answer. Is there enough water, Dr. Kynes? Kynes stared at his plate. Jessica watched the play of emotion on his face. He masks himself well, she thought. But she had him registered now and read that he regretted his words. Is there enough water? the Duke demanded. There may be, Kynes said. He's faking uncertainty, Jessica thought. With his deeper truth sense, Paul caught the underlying motive, had to use every ounce of his training to mask his excitement. There is enough water, but Kynes doesn't wish it to be known. Our planetologist has many interesting dreams, Butte said. He dreams with the Fremen of prophecies and messiahs. Chuckles sounded at odd places around the table. Jessica marked them, the smuggler, 
the still-suit manufacturer's daughter, Duncan Idaho, the woman with the mysterious escort service. Tensions are oddly distributed here tonight, Jessica thought. There's too much going on of which I'm not aware. I'll have to develop new information sources. The Duke passed his gaze from Kynes to Butte to Jessica. He felt oddly let down, as though something vital had passed him here. Maybe, he muttered. Kynes spoke quickly. Perhaps we should discuss this another time, my lord. There are so many... The planetologist broke off as a uniformed Atreides trooper hurried in through the service door, was passed by the guard, and rushed to the Duke's side. The man bent, whispering into Leto's ear. Jessica recognized the capsign of Howard's corps, fought down uneasiness. She addressed herself to the stillsuit manufacturer's feminine companion, a tiny, dark-haired woman with a doll face, a touch of epicanthic fold to the eyes. "'You've hardly touched your dinner, my dear,' Jessica said. "'May I order you something?' The woman looked at the stillsuit manufacturer before answering. Then, "'I'm not very hungry.' Abruptly, the Duke stood up beside his trooper, spoke in a harsh tone of command. Stay seated, everyone. You will have to forgive me, but a matter has arisen that requires my personal attention. He stepped aside. Paul, take over as host for me, if you please. Paul stood, wanting to ask why his father had to leave, knowing he had to play this with the grand manner. He moved around to his father's chair, sat down in it. The Duke turned to the alcove where Halleck sat, said... Gurney, please take Paul's place at table. We mustn't have an odd number here. When the dinner's over, I may want you to bring Paul to the field CP. Wait for my call. Halleck emerged from the alcove in dress uniform, his lumpy ugliness seeming out of place in the glittering finery. He leaned his baliset against the wall, crossed to the chair Paul had occupied, sat down. There's no need for alarm, the Duke said, but I must ask that no one leave until our house guard says it's safe. You will be perfectly secure as long as you remain here, and will have this little trouble cleared up very shortly. Paul caught the code words in his father's message. Guard. Safe. Secure. Shortly. The problem was security, not violence. He saw that his mother had read the same message. They both relaxed. The Duke gave a short nod, wheeled and strode through the service door, followed by his trooper. <laughs> 